Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and what's next. It's a show that asks questions and peels back the layers of our average everyday experience and goes beyond scratching the surface. We interview people doing incredible things who are making a difference around the globe. Join me as we listen in and get one step closer to understanding that big ideas shared create collaboration. Collaboration can inspire community and communities create social change. I'm David Peck and this is Face to Face.
Today's interview is, is, is a lot of fun. It's with a guy who has a passion, in his words, a passion for growing things. He talks about simple living and the moral and wise application of knowledge. He wants to talk about indigenous underused neglected seeds i mean what actually is that all about in food sovereignty he's a he's an ecologist he's an agronomist i suppose he has a phd in agriculture working in chiang mai in thailand we talk about seed banks not food banks but seed banks and harvesting and i mean the metaphors abound i think you're going to enjoy it abram bixler's his name he's with an organization in called echo not too far from one of my uh favorite places in the world, Cambodia, northeastern Cambodia, hoping we're going to be working together, Abram I, in the near future. You're going to enjoy this. Don't forget to also uh, get a copy of my book, Real Changes Incremental, because frankly, I think you're going to enjoy that too. We'll talk to you soon. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We have another special guest with us today. I guess we're close to 100 interviews now, and I always say we have special guests, but we really do have a special guest here today, uh, Abram uh, Bixler. He's the director of the Echo Asia Impact Center. Um, Abram, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here, David. So Abram is in uh, Thailand right now. Are you in Chiang Mai right now, Abram? That's right. Uh, here in Chiang Mai, Thailand, right in the, the northern part of Thailand. And you know, I'm old enough, I'm an old enough fart to say I'm still always amazed at the technology. It, it's pretty incredible that uh, we're streaming live here across uh, countless thousands of kilometers. <laughs> That's right. Cultures, languages, you know, uh, the human condition, Abram, we are, we are streaming across. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So thanks for joining us. Um, so I'm hoping to talk uh, a bit about not only about you and about the work that you do and about your passion for social change and for impact and, 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 and all that, uh, food security and so on. We're going to get into some specifics, but I want to talk about, about the region too. I mean, as, as most of my listeners will know, I've got a huge passion for Cambodia. Uh, my wife and I, Elizabeth, we've, we've, we've spent time there. I've been going there for many years now, involved in development projects of one kind or another. But I want to talk about that. Um, but before we roll on some of the more sort of specific things, tell me a little bit about you and maybe your family and, and how the heck did you end up in uh, Thailand? <laughs> you know, why Echo? Yeah. And, and, and tell me about what it is that gets you out of bed in the morning. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know what, if I had my way about it, I probably would have ended up as a, a landscape architect, probably in the, the Midwest. I'm from uh, Illinois, so not too far from Toronto, um, and that was what I was gunning for, really, in undergraduate, doing landscape architecture. I've had a passion for growing things since an early age, and um, I went to a small school in Indiana called Taylor University, and it was there at Taylor, my first semester, I took a environmental science class, and had never left the country, and for the first time in my life, I really came face to face with a lot of the current realities of the world and, and just how different a lot of realities for, for most people, frankly, were than my own reality and uh, just really resonated deep down within me. And um, being a person of faith, I also saw a real desire and a real real drive to to help people on a, on a physical level as well as a spiritual level. Those, those things kind of came crashing together and kind of an epiphany early my freshman year at, uh, at my undergraduate and um, my whole life direction changed to basically agricultural development and being involved in that somewhere, somehow. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard as an 18-year-old, you know, knowing what that all entails and what it means, but um, 
pursued graduate studies then thereafter, a master's degree and a PhD both from the University of Illinois where I was in the, the School of Natural Resources and Environmental Science and um, graduated with, with both those degrees, really focused on sustainable agriculture but also development best practices okay. and okay. Uh, Midwestern sustainable ag is, is certainly different than tropical agriculture but you know the ecological principles are really the same, you know, they really are, are, are based on the same major principles and um, one thing led to another and met my wife there at, at graduate school and we were married four years and moved to Chiang Mai, Thailand six years ago where um, I started actually teaching at a study abroad school for American undergraduates in, in sustainable development. Um, all the while I was volunteering with, with EcoAsia here uh -huh. in Chiang Mai. And um, yeah, two years ago, I became the director of, of EcoAsia. So it was a really, uh, it made a lot of sense, the transition. I had four years of, of uh, mentorship of a really incredible uh, egg development um, worker who, who started the office here in Chiang Mai. And then he moved back to the States, and I, and I became the director two years ago. So, so I read here, you know, your blurb on your site, you fight world hunger, and, and then the, here I'm going to quote, Echo exists to reduce hunger and improve the lives of small-scale farmers worldwide. We work to identify, validate, document, and disseminate best practices in sustainable agriculture and appropriate technology. So, I mean, the close quote. So the metaphors abound, right? The planting seeds, the breaking mm -hmm. ground, you know, the tilling of the fields, and, and it just, it goes on. I mean, it's actually really quite brilliant. But before we go there, so your environmental science class, was that a seed for you? Was that, I mean, you look back in your past and, you know, you start to connect the dots and you see where family experience and travel and these kind of things all play a role. But for you, was that professor, was there a book, was there a moment where you said, wow, this, I want to help change the world? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I would say that, that uh, there was a month in there, I think it was November we're going through a textbook. I still remember it. It's uh, Environmental Science by Nebel and Wright. And, um, Sounds riveting, uh, Abram. Yeah. <laughs> we also, uh, our, our campus had Clive Calvert, who was the, uh, the president of World Relief oh, okay. back in, this would have been 1998. He was a speaker. He spoke for about a week on campus. And um, yeah, it was, it was those things kind of coming together. I'd say that that was the real seed, hearing Clive and being riveted by the work that World Relief was doing at the time and, you know, just the real tangible um, things that could be done through best practices, through simple living, I think was sure. a big takeaway ah. from that class as well. And then, you know, the, the moral application or the, the wise application of knowledge, I think, really came to the forefront for me during that time and just seeing, you know, I've been, I, I felt really responsible for the things I was learning and then to to apply those things um, wisely. So, you know, you use, it's such a great phrase, the moral and wise application of knowledge. But, uh, you know, having been, you know, working in the field for a few years now uh, and seeing different approaches and seeing, you know, the, you know, Breck talk about a fourth wall in theater. And I think a lot of times development workers build walls instead of break them down. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. this whole idea of listening to communities that they work in and listening to children and listening to boys and to girls and so on doesn't always happen in the way that I would call uh, or the, that I would like to think is sustainable and holistic and, and meaningful and inclusive. Um, you know, 
do we have it all right here in the West? I mean, is that what you're doing? Is your are you are you are you coming into a community and going, hey, we've we know what the moral and wise application of knowledge really is all about? <laughs> yeah, I would say uh, there is so much to be learned from from local knowledge. And, yeah. You know, one of the reasons why this office got started back in 2009 um, was because Echo for almost 30 years had been based out of Fort Myers, Florida. Echo was started in the early 80s, uh, based out of Fort Myers, Florida. You know, it's about the closest the U.S. gets to a subtropical climate. Sure. Uh, and it was there, and it was dependent upon learning new techniques, um, learning about new seeds, underutilized crops, techniques from people that were writing to Echo back in the days, you know, emailing them later, but then also coming and, and in person sharing about their experiences. But uh, one of the reasons why Echo opened an office here in Chiang Mai was to be that much closer to um, the people whom we work with, the development agents, ag missionaries, academics, farmers, um, to be on the ground and, and ears on the ground, eyes on the ground, to learn from communities, to engage in participatory methods, and then to take that, that local knowledge and to attempt to verify it. Um, and, you know, that, that, there's a whole spectrum of verification that can go on. But, but really to be here and to, to really offer kind of a two-way street of um, kind of an information hub, taking in information, taking in indigenous neglected, underutilized seeds with potential um, and then also sharing those, disseminating ideas and information, seeds, disseminating ideas that are working in communities in Cambodia and sharing those with Cam uh, communities in Myanmar or Northeast India. Um, so, you know, there's a tremendous amount to be learned if we, if we just can learn to, to be quiet, to facilitate, to ask good questions. Hey, so... Um Close to a billion people, I think. You can help me out here, but I'm pretty sure I'm fairly close with my UN stat, World Bank stat. Close to a billion people will go to bed hungry tonight, I think, from mm -hmm. what I understand. And I guess, obviously, that's, you know, there are very, you know, I go to bed hungry from time to time, but what does that actually mean? Well, not a whole lot, because I'll have a banana first thing in the morning, and I have, I have this access that so many people around the world don't have. Um, can you make a distinction, Abram, between hunger and malnutrition for me? Uh, that's a That's a great... A great question. Um, yeah, and the stats get kind of intertwined at, at times. You're absolutely right. About three quarters of, of the world's chronically hungry people are here in Asia. Uh, often that's overshadowed by, by Africa. But, um, you know, hunger is, is not having enough food to eat on a, on a routine basis if you're talking about chronic hunger. Malnutrition is, is having potentially food to eat but not the proper nutrition, um, the nutrition that will get you through the day, the nutrition that enables you to have a productive mm. life, the nutrition that allows you know children to go to school, to be able to learn in school. Um, and so often they're, they're related and often they're linked. But you know, increasingly, especially with the obesity and um, an overweight epidemic that we're seeing in the developed parts of the world, you can have you can have plenty of food, but but being malnourished um, as well. So so you know I I I I've spent time on your site and and certainly uh, understand I think to some degree the interconnectedness or almost the interdependency of 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 
you know, the idiosyncrasies of living life day to day, right? On mm. the ground. What are what mm-hmm. what happens when there's a flood? What happens when we don't have rain, etc.? Um, tell me, you know, you, you echo is and you by the sounds of it, based on your work academically, but also practically. And that's the thing I think I love about you, Abram, is that you are clearly an academic with a PhD in a very specific field, right? <laughs> I mean, the crack about the riveting textbook. I mean, it's a, it's a good thing the world has people like you, but you're also on the ground. I met a philanthropist recently who donated a significant amount of money to an initiative that we were involved in right out of the gate within hours of meeting this guy. And and in the same conversation, asked me if I would found out that I was an electrician by trade, construction worker, and said, hey, I'm heading to Haiti to install some solar panels uh, with a group of people. Would you come with us? I've never met this guy before in my life. So not only is he the philanthropist, but he's also on the ground getting it done. And I think that's what mm-hmm. I have a great deal of time and effort, uh, respect for, for folks like you who've got this theoretical knowledge, but who aren't interested in just, you know, blowing the dust off library bookshelves, <laughs> you know? So, so how do things like gender disparity, how do things like education, uh, feeling empowered, um, 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 mental health, all these things, how do they impact the way a farmer works, you know, you talk about inequality on your side and empowerment and so on. And, mm-hmm. and, and a solution for a family is not just about getting the right seeds or the right fertilizer. It seems to me. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, the, there's so many factors that, that, that can impact livelihoods. We talk a lot about food security and livelihoods and increasingly food sovereignty, food sovereignty. as well. Yeah. Food sovereignty. And, you know, just having, um, Having the right to decide what you grow, what you eat, um, you know, I think this is integrated into seeds. It's a, it's a big part of what we do, and we see the connection between not only food security but food sovereignty and in seeds. Um, and I think one thing that that we as Echo try to do to to help in all, in all these various realms is is there's no silver bullet in agriculture, as you know. There's no silver bullet in development mm-hmm. either. Um, we like, to, we like to offer people options. We like to have an open-handed approach and say, here are options. We've seen these options work in other parts of um, the world, maybe with a climate similar to yours, maybe with a culture similar to yours. Um, maybe we've vetted and verified these options both through the academic literature, but also maybe we've tried it up at our seed bank. Um, we've done research on it, or we've, we've seen other people that have, have grown these successfully in their small farm resource center and, um, you, you know, kind of our bread and butter are um, ideas and techniques and seeds related to, to ag development, but we also offer um, information and ideas and trainings on, on water and sanitation, on uh, participatory appraisal and, and participatory methods and approaches to development. We offer things on seed banking and seed saving, um, information on veterinary science and you know a lot of it we're we're not we're not experts in all these things by by any means i'm more of a generalist than anything as an ecologist i think it's probably set me up well to be a generalist so we can we can put people in touch with others who are experts in those fields or um you know not necessarily holding an academic degree but experts farmers who have successfully implemented things like agroforestry we can we can put people in touch um, with others who have been there, who have done it, and and the hope would be that we can save people time, um, cut the learning curve, 
by far we can we can help save people resources and yeah and isn't is <laughs> and, and Abram, isn't there something to be said for, you know, good leadership or someone who's, you know, and maybe there's a, a distinction here between bright and smart, but, you know, isn't there, isn't there something to be said, a wisdom in bringing in the experts at some point and saying, we don't know what agroforestry is really all about because we're specializing in X, Y, and Z. So let's get this person in to, to tell us more, to teach us more and so on. And I think, I think certainly uh, as a development guy and my background, I could academically philosophy and and you can get pretty arrogant and pretty cocky and condescending mm. in any of these fields but i think that the approach as you learn more is to say well hang on a second here holy cow there, there there's uh, look at look at the connections here look at the implications and and like you said earlier be quiet you know ask some good questions and and, and see what bubbles to the surface yeah, you're absolutely right i think you know uh humility uh mm. is is essential for any any good development work and there, there's so much to be learned from from local knowledge and you know I really fear there's so much to be lost as well as we see so many cultures displaced and I think in a thing you know Southeast Asia with land grabbing in Cambodia and, and infrastructure development in China and Laos and, and Myanmar and you know as, as lo local cultures are displaced um, we're just in such danger of losing um, local knowledge in danger of losing local seed varieties that are that are a huge part of culture as well and you know just having the the humility to to learn from people to ask people those those questions yeah it takes a takes a a, a big you have to swallow your pride you, yeah, for, for sure so so tell me a little bit more about uh let's get a little more specific here on this this seed banking idea i mean i think in principle i know what this is all about um but but you know, and your concern about, you know, you know, we've got displaced cultures and land grabbing and what, what's actually happening here. So we, are you talking about a couple of different things here from a you know, seed banking perspective, but also trying to use, what was the phrase you used, the phrase here, indigenous underused neglected seeds. What, is, mm. what does that really mean? Is that, yeah. hey, there's a, there's a plant that's actually going to go extinct here? Or, or is it about using a local, I don't know, seed that has more um, fruit <laughs> ultimately attached to it rather than bringing in a foreign seed? Mm -hmm. it's, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll attack the, uh, the seed banking question first. One, one thing that we're really passionate about, I just love seeds and and our staff here do you have a, love hey abram do you have a do you have a do you have a, do you have a t yeah do you have a t-shirt that says i love seeds yeah or actually a our Croatia t-shirts do have a picture of seeds on them <laughs> that's pretty funny okay there's there's a very small group of people in the world who love seeds i think just so you know <laughs> um but we one one integral component of of echo asia is our seed bank we have a seed bank in in Mayai, Thailand, about three hours north here of, of Chiang Mai. And, and at our seed bank, we have about two acres of production plots. And really the goal of our seed bank is to, to find crops of merit that do well here in Asia, um, that have a, a real niche for, for smallholder farmers, either because they're easy to grow, because they improve the soil, because they're high in nutrition, um, and maybe there's a market aspect to them as well and our seed bank we we evaluate crops and, and most of the crops that we have at the seed bank are from Asia to begin with um, they usually have a broad range but we evaluate them we try them at our seed bank we, we see how they grow are they easy to grow do they have diseases problems and then um, 
We actually offer them to to our our members. We have a free membership. If anyone's interested, I probably talked about members a couple of times, but we have a, a member network of about um, 1,500 organizations and individuals who, who can sign up for free on www.echocommunity.org. And that's really kind of how we network people. And part of being a member is having the ability to receive free sample packets of seeds from our seed bank to, to try in your context, um, hopefully low risk to farmers, to see what grows, what works well, um, what fits in culturally, what fits in environmentally, what fits in culinarily. Um, you know, if you can have an, an incredibly nutritious plants and if no one eats it because they don't know how to cook it then uh, you know what good is it yeah yeah and so really our, our desire of our seed bank is to help preserve biodiversity that in many cases farmers have have created just through saving their seeds over over generations and and have created varieties that grow well in their areas and hopefully other areas so to preserve that biodiversity to share it with others um I think that biodiversity is best preserved when it's growing and um, is adapting and is evolving to particular locations. When seeds are being shared among communities and organizations, and um, you know, I, I think there's a, a huge potential as well to encourage others to to start seed banks, whether they're at the community level um, or they're at an organizational level. You know, we've talked about the organization that you're on the board with in, in Cambodia. And, you know, there's just a huge potential for individuals to start seed banks, for organizations to start seed banks, um, whether they're a physical location or whether it's a person that is um, saving seed year, year to year and sharing that with, with farmers um, to, to use best practices and, and how to store that seed to keep it from being eaten by insects or deteriorate from the harsh tropical conditions, but that's one thing we're passionate about is just sharing our seeds with others, sharing our knowledge that we've learned through the years with others and how to, um, in a lot of cases, very inexpensively and with very low input, create um, a seed bank that, that people can, can use to help farmers store and save their seeds and in doing so become less dependent on commercial sources of seed, which oftentimes you know, in, involve high high input costs and um, loss of, of local seeds. So I don't know if this is an area that you've done much thinking or reading on. I would imagine it would be. I, I've just finished teaching a course at Humber in interna- issue, Issues in International Development, and uh, we got a little sidetracked at one point. Um, maybe it was more me me independently, but on, on the whole notion of GMOs. I've done a little bit of reading on it and, you know, this whole idea of uh, genetic modification, you know, uh, on, and, and it's certainly the implications are far-reaching on a lot of levels, it seems to me. It's not just happening at a farming uh, um, uh, level, but where do you, where do you land on that? I mean, oh, you know, well. <laughs> you know, we've got we've got the agrarian revolution. We changed the type of wheat. We changed the world, right? Uh-huh. You know, and on one hand, you go, this has got to be the future to some. I check this out. I don't know how true this is, but I recently was sent a link and I did read it, and it looked like a legitimate news source. But food is now being made out of human excrement. 
and um, in in Japan. And apparently, uh, this is you know something that could actually work in the future. And wouldn't it you know accommodate us on so many levels? And think about the environmental implications and so on because of the protein content that's in feces, I suppose. Mm. So so pretty crazy to think about that on one <laughs> level but yet wow what a what a 25th century like solution you know how blade runner of you <laughs> right right absolutely and that's a, that's the first thing that really came to my mind is that you know some of the technology that's available is is really um from a scientific perspective really really brilliant and um and yet i find myself with an, working for an organization that really is targeting smallholder farmers mm. the the farmers that probably lack infrastructure to begin with. Um, if they have roads, maybe lack market access to inputs. Um, if they have access to inputs, maybe they lack access to capital to buy those inputs. Right. And, right. you know, I think I think one thing that we focus on in our seed bank are open pollinated crops and varieties of, of plants, simply for the fact that farmers can save seeds from open pollinated plants um, Whereas they cannot save seeds from hybrid plants, the the seeds that you buy from a a breeder who would be hybridizing and, and selling seeds. As soon as, as soon as you start to to use hybrid seeds, then um, we've seen in a lot of cases where your local land varieties go extinct very very quickly, and then you become beholden really to to purchasing seed year after year. Um, same thing with GMOs. You know, GMOs typically are with hybridized seed, and um, you know, I think they, they, they have their place in industrialized agriculture when convenience and access to chemicals is, is something that maybe you're going for for commodity cropping. Um, but with the, the smallholders that we are, are working with through our network, you know, we really land on the side of what are, what are techniques that we can, we can promote that our, our low input things well, that farmers and, yeah, don't seem, have to buy. seem a little more more traditional almost to by the sounds of it absolutely and you know low input farm derived inputs and you know it doesn't necessarily mean outdated it means right. um, can we have synergy in um, the ecological bases and, and functions that are already happening on someone's farm and you know can we through good management and um, you know maybe seed varieties that we're offering through our seed bank or, or other people are, are finding, um, increase productivity, reduce input costs, uh, and in doing so, you know, improve yield and, and maybe profit as well for, for farmers. And so, it, so it sounds to me like you're almost, you're okay with GMOs as, you know, you're, as, as long as it's, you know, your phrase, industrialized agriculture, keep it inside of a greenhouse, keep it away from my family farm and we're okay. I, yeah, you know, we major. Hey, Abram, I get it. Major yeah. form of reductionism there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, you know, I think that they they probably have their their place. I would certainly um, tend personally to be um, more cautionary, probably more of a European than an American in terms oh, of okay. um, guilty until proven innocent when it comes to to things like new technologies and whatnot. Maybe more of a luddite, but so you're you know, an old, I, you're I, an old uh, fart too. <laughs> I've seen, I've seen, you know, places where where GMOs have for 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 plant protection purposes have done have done a good job right. um, with with whom we're working with, and um, I think really for for the future of of agriculture, I think we're going to see kind of a return to 
um, more processes that are ecologically based. And I just think for sustainability purposes, if you have if you have an oil based agriculture like we do in, in the industrialized West, then you know GMOs are are part of that. You know they're a cog in that system. Right. Um, but there's a heavy reliance upon oil. There's a heavy reliance upon mechanization, and um, there's just yeah. Yeah, in other parts of the world, we just don't have that, and so, um, so you've, I don't—I don't know if we're always going to have that in the West either. You've—you've you've seen examples on the ground, examples of where things like this have been imposed, and it's had a uh, had a detrimental effect on local agriculture. Yeah, especially when it comes to um, you know just the the introduction of hybridized seed, and again, I, I think that hybrid seeds a a, a phenomenal tool. For agriculture, and there's there's a lot of reasons why we use hybrid seed for improved yield, resistance to falling over, you know, flooding, um, resistance to pests and diseases. But one thing that that concerns me personally is is just the loss of of local genetic diversity. You know, it's it's been estimated that we've lost about 75 percent of the genetic basis of our agriculture in the last hundred years. Um, you know, that's that's a, a loss that will never be replaced, and um, and I, I I have seen just a kind of a direct connection to to farmers um, using new and improved hybrid seeds and the loss of their own farmer derived varieties in a, in a very short period of time. You know, sometimes three to five years, just because of the high humidity that we often have here in the humid subtropics. Mm-hmm. Hey, so, you know, you mentioned briefly there something earlier about the West, and I live in, in Oakville, Ontario. It's uh, uh, one of the more um, affluent communities in, in Canada, frankly, and there's divisions. Uh, there is a lot of people still at risk in, in this community. If you drive about five, six kilometers south, you've got some of the wealthiest families in the world, and, you know, you, you, you would drive through the the community and say, okay, there's nobody at risk here. There's nobody that, that needs anything, right? That's kind mm-hmm. of how you would feel. It's a town of just under 200,000 people. And yet, I work with enough local organizations to know that there are lots of people at risk. That food security in italics is a bit of an issue here. That that obesity is an issue. That nutrition is an issue. And so what we're starting to see are local uh, organizations that are growing things more you know, mm-hmm. and that 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 may not be quite as fascinated by seed as you are, but are <laughs> very much into this idea of local farming. So on the way to taking my son to play soccer in the summer, we're going to drive by two local gardens where people are coming to do their own farming, if you will. Do you see this as a, you know, a little bit of a fad? Or is this a real shift, do you think, in the thinking and our understanding about, you know, the little things making a big difference? You know, I, I'm not a prognosticator by any means. I, I certainly hope that it is a, it's more than a fad, um, and that it really is a kind of a long-term change. I, you know, I've seen increasingly people being concerned about what they're eating, people trying to find linkages to, um, you know, obesity and, and being overweight, but but as well as some of these chronic gut issues that we're seeing in in health and people becoming more concerned about. Crohn's disease and irritable bowel syndrome and some some of these things and um, yeah I, I certainly hope that it, it is a shift towards towards more local eating I hope it's a shift towards more healthy wholesome eating um, you know I think the the amount of food processing that goes on scares a lot of people I think for good measure I think that 
the fact that we've reduced a lot of agriculture to just the purely commodity mm-hmm. crop production system. You know, if, if it's corn, rice, wheat, or soy, it's, you know, it accounts for a great percentage of what we eat. And I think just a, a return to um, realizing that food is diverse and our diets probably need to be diverse as well. And, and that we're at a, a real kind of potential crisis for, for putting our, all of our eggs in one basket. Um, you know, I don't see any, anything on the horizon anytime soon in terms of, of food and, and farm policy in the West really um, shifting us back towards more healthy eating. Um, but, you know, something that, that's outside of, of our control that would probably have the same effect of doing that is either high oil prices or um, climate change or yes. pest and disease outbreak cycles that, you know, the technology I think is only going to go so far and um, that we will come to a point in time where I think our technology is not going to be able to to keep up with with a, a major pest or disease cycle. And it might really force us back to diversified cropping systems, local cropping systems, um, systems that are frankly probably more labor intensive frankly, more management intensive, which also means more thought provoking. And, um, well, you know, what's, you know. <laughs> what's interesting, what's interesting about what you're saying there is that even I think, you know, speaking to some local people working with some of these community gardens that are being funded by organizations, you know, throughout Ontario and certainly being supported by the government and so on, on some level, uh, are that it, it is, it is thought provoking because how, how, you know, it's it's about trying to get people away from, say, a food bank and start um, relying on something that is totally commodity-driven on, on some level because this is what's left over, so we'll send it to the food bank. That's mm-hmm. good enough for people who don't matter. You know, okay, sorry, mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's pretty cynical. But unfortunately, I think that's kind of what we end up with. So get a little more involved with your community garden, and all of a sudden you're eating things that actually have nutrients, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and you're a little more involved. And, uh-huh. and, and you're 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 engaged, and unfortunately, you've got a climate where you can do this twelve months of the year. We don't, you know, we're we're limited by our winters. Um, but but I think I, what I, what's exciting to me about it, Abram, is that I think it's a it's like a it's yes, it's practical. People are eating better food, hopefully because of community gardens. But they're they're also planting. Sorry about this. They're planting seeds to, to mm-hmm. you know thought, thought that that hopefully are going to open them up to to other worlds and their kids and so. On. You know, my, it's Earth Day today. My daughter says to me as she's walking out, seven years old, Dad, make sure you turn off the lights before you go out today. And I wow. was like, that's, <laughs> that's, A, it's funny, but on, on another level, that's amazing that mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't have said that to my mom and dad 40 years ago. There wasn't an uh-huh. Earth Day 40 years ago, right? It's so, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I hear a hopeful, uh, I don't know where you stand. I'm, I'm quite hopeful, and I hear a hopeful tone in your voice as well. I absolutely. I think, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot, um, to be, to be won back really. Um, maybe, maybe something what we've, what we've lost. I, I'm the first generation to grow up off farm. My, uh, my parents both grew up on, on small diversified 200 acre family farms in Northern Illinois. And, you know, they grew up with dairy cattle and hogs and chickens and oats and alfalfa and corn and soybeans and, and hay, and they grew up, you know, with the the, the fruit of their labor, and and also the, the blood, sweat, and tears. But the 
you know, the self-sufficiency and the, the ability to, to put in a hard day's work but see the, the fruit of their labor. And um, I'm hopeful, David, I, I really am, that, um, that we will recoup some of, some of what we've lost. And, you know, I've seen how some of these systems can be so incredibly productive, whether it's Joel Salatin's farm in, in Virginia or it's a, it's a small farm here in Thailand, you know, maybe a hectare or two hectares, but feeding not only the farmer's family, but, but multiple families in the community or that organic farmer that I worked with in, in central Illinois who was, was growing, growing food on just a hectare or two and feeding, oh, you know, numerous, numerous families through his CSA boxes. And, um, yeah, I, I, really, I really do think that um, we're kind of, kind of in an, maybe at a turning point really for, for seeing just a, a return to to these practices and, and just to, to realize that um, there's more to life than just going to a job eight to five and not knowing your neighbors, but getting involved and mm-hmm. turning your, turning your front yard into a vegetable patch and, and um, getting to know your neighbors again and um, feeding, feeding yourself a little bit, getting some exercise while you're doing that. There's something profoundly relational, spiritual, and holistic and just wonderful about uh, sharing a meal together with people, you know, and, and mm. something we so often take for granted, deeply, obviously connected to farmers and, and the ground and hopefully anyway. And, and I think it's, it's pretty marvelous. I mean, I, it's crazy. I st- we could go back through our conversation today and probably find 25 different metaphors and, <laughs> and phrases that we use that have this agro kind of connect. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, hey, so when you come home, uh, when I say home, home sounds like Thailand for you guys now. But when you come back to the States, Illinois, is the first thing you reach for a box of craft dinner? <laughs> no, it's it's not. We do miss some of the, uh, you know, some of the food that we can get in the U.S. that we can't get here. But we, we, uh, we, we're spoiled by Thai food, David, I have to admit. Yeah, that's uh, spoiled, true. Yeah. Spoiled by all the fresh tropical fruits and, yeah. you know, just the seasonality around of the tropical tropical fruits here but uh, we, we certainly do have our have our, our go-to things in the US the, the Western food that we miss uh, in moderation you know we, we eat out at a at a restaurant maybe once and we're like all right that's that's enough uh, of, a, of a restaurant chain yes. for us let's uh, let's make our own food or let's uh, let's try to find some jasmine rice in the grocery store make some sticky rice. Right. Um, well, for our have, kids yeah, growing mang- up in Thailand mango sticky <laughs> rice man it doesn't get much better. Oh. Um, so what's the worst thing that you eat from time to time? Is it, is it, is it, is it, is it Coke? Is it uh, a caramel chocolate bar? I mean, what's... You know, without getting in trouble for any libel laws, you know, yeah, that's right. say, yeah. you know, the first thing that we probably would go for, if, if we were craving just, you know, it'd probably be a greasy hamburger. Yeah. Uh, maybe from one of the, one of the chains. Um, but yeah, that would, that's, that'd probably be about the worst thing. <laughs> I eat both because of its industrial ag implications, as well as you know, just the the calories and the the lack of nutrition from it. But uh, yeah, every once in a while, um, it surely does. <laughs> Do, you know, strike just, a chord. Just before we end, I mean, maybe we could end on more uh, a comment about globalization. Do you see? Do you see that happening? I mean, I certainly do. I've been going to uh, Cambodia now for about thirteen years and and seeing a real shift. And there's no, you know, there's no real big chains in Phnom Penh yet or throughout the country. However, at the airport, there's a Dairy Queen and there's a Burger King, and eventually they're going to reach out into the country. Do you see that? 
really impacting the society? Do you see the West moving East? Uh, you know, certainly there's been an explosion of Thai and sushi restaurants mm-hmm. around where, you know, the Toronto area. So, you know, is mm-hmm. the East moving West a little bit, but, you know, but- I think, I think it's a, uh, it's a lot of all of the above. I think the, the West certainly has been moving East for, for quite some time with all the chains and whatnot. Uh, increasingly, you know, I am seeing the East moving West, like you mentioned, but also the East moving East, especially with China becoming a global player. Um, and, you know, as the U.S. And, and Canada, I think the U.S. talked a lot in the last couple of years about Asia as the pivot and just right. seeing really have, how China has kind of come in and uh, and ha- I think really has become the pivot. Um, you go to Cambodia and certainly huge Chinese interest there. It's the same in Thailand. Um, India as well. And so, you know, it's just really, it's kind of a, a whirlpool, if I could use uh, another bad metaphor, but, you know, a <laughs> whirlpool of, of just, you have all these these influences coming together and, and really vying and vetting for, for people's attention. And, you know, hopefully in the in the whole scheme of it, um, you know, we're, we're also seeing some positive change as well. And, you know, I think that's one thing where Echo comes comes back to. I, I often say, you know, it's development is so holistic. It involves every facet of a, of a human and being and, and community. And, you know, it's really, we're, we're not doing any good if we're just creating better consumers um, through the information. If we're just giving people the, the ability to gain more capital so they can buy more consumer goods, um, you know, we've really missed the point. I think um, and, and for all development, you know, we really have to ask ourselves, are we just creating more consumers for the global market? Are we really empowering people to, um, to have safe places, to participate in democracy, to improve their lives as they see fit? Are we helping people to gain access to, to better health and to better education? and to the ability to, to choose the lives they want to live for themselves. You know, maybe that is uh, gaining access to, to some of these consumer goods, but um, to livelihoods and, and these other things. And so, you know, it's a, it's a whole, it's a really fascinating and exciting time to be in Asia just as we see these things coming together. And yet from within Asia, we do see people who worry about the migration of their children into the cities, who worry about the... Um, you know the, the the urban poor that that right. are there that are, are maybe less better off than they were back in their their rural communities. So, um, seeing change on all those fronts. Well, you know, Abram, I, I can't believe we've we've been online for for over forty minutes chatting, and and I want to thank you today. We we really, you know, I often end, almost always end my interviews by saying there's just so much more going on than meets the eye, mm-hmm. and and we've barely scratched the surface here. But you've ended with almost a redefinition of globalization, it seems to me. And I think, you know, if nothing else, uh, there's so much here that we've chatted about, but you know, this idea of just being a little more attentive and listening and you know, again, the metaphors might be corny, but boy, they 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 go deep. There's another one. Um, so, listen, <laughs> thank thanks so much for joining us uh, today. I, I really appreciate it.
My pleasure, David. This has been uh, has been wonderful. I wish we had more time to talk, but yeah. uh, well, we'll do look it. forward to the time when we can meet in person. Absolutely, and we will do part two uh, for sure down the road. Maybe we can do that in person up in Stone Krang, uh, up in northern Cambodia, or maybe in Chiang Mai in the near future. That'd be great. That'd be uh, great. Live from Stung Treng. There you go. <laughs> yes. I've actually done a couple interviews. I did one from Anlong Bang. I've done one or two in Phnom Penh and one in Siem Reap. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's spread out over Southeast Asia. Anyway, thank you again, Abram. That's Abram Bixler today joining us with uh, from uh, Director of the Echo Asia Impact Center. That's echonet.org. Thank you.